Anyone know what that is? That's music to my ears. That's another sale on Shopify, the all-in-one commerce platform to start, run, and grow your business. Shopify makes it simple to sell to anyone from anywhere. Whether you're selling shirts or sandals, start selling with Shopify and join the platform simplifying commerce for millions of businesses worldwide. With Shopify, you'll customize your online store to your brand, discover new customers, and build relationships that will keep them coming back. Shopify covers all the sales channels to successfully grow your business, from an in-person POS system to an all-in-one e-commerce platform, even across social media platforms like TikTok, Facebook, and Instagram. And thanks to 24-7 support and free on-demand business courses, Shopify is here to help you succeed every step of the way. It's how every minute, new sellers around the world make their first sale with Shopify. And you can do it too. I love how Shopify makes it simple for anyone to sell their products anywhere. Whether they're eBooks or earrings, Shopify simplifies starting and running your own successful business. When you're ready to take your idea to the world, do it with Shopify, the commerce platform powering millions of businesses down the street and around the globe. Now it's your turn to try Shopify for free and start selling anywhere. So sign up for a free trial at shopify.com slash c-suite, all lowercase on c-suite. Go to shopify.com slash c-suite, all lowercase on c-suite, to start selling online today. Shopify.com slash c-suite. You're listening to Thinking Outside the Bud, where we speak with entrepreneurs, investors, thought leaders, researchers, advocates, and policymakers who are finding new and exciting ways for cannabis to positively impact business, society, and culture. And now, here is your host, business coach, Bruce Eckfeldt. Are you a CEO looking to scale your company faster and easier? Check out Thrive Roundtable. Thrive combines a moderated peer group mastermind, expert one-on-one coaching, access to proven growth tools, and a 24-7 support community. Created by Inc. award-winning CEO and certified scaling-up business coach Bruce Eckfeldt, Thrive will help you grow your business more quickly and with less drama. For details on the program, visit Eckfeldt.com slash thrive. That's E-C-K-F-E-L-D-T dot com slash thrive. Welcome, everyone. This is Thinking Outside the Bud. I'm Bruce Eckfeldt. I'm your host. And our guest today is Chris Ball. He is CEO and founder of Ball Family Farms. We're going to talk to him about the work he's done in helping cultivate and develop cannabis. Some really interesting stuff, some interesting background, some interesting cultivars, some interesting strains, some work he's been doing, fascinating kind of background. Chris is also involved in really helping with making sure that we've got people of diverse backgrounds you know, working in the cannabis space, really active in the social equity, social justice efforts that are going on in cannabis, obviously. A big part of cannabis in general, and obviously over the last six, nine months has been you know a big topic in the cannabis circle. So I'm really interested in talking with Chris about how this is working, right? Like, are we effective? Are we not effective? What's working with some of these programs? And really understand uh, you know how these programs are developing and how it's really kind of helping making sure that we've got a good, diverse group of people in the cannabis space. So with that, Chris, welcome to the program. Thanks, Bruce. Thanks for having me. Love that introduction, man. That was a, a great introduction and kickoff to this segment. So. <laughs> I'm excited to have you. I've, you know, I've been I'm kind of reading on some of the stuff you've done, some of the interesting kind of background you have and stuff. So I'm I'm excited to kind of not only hear kind of what you're doing entrepreneurially, but really kind of your take on the industry at this point because I think it is um, there's a lot of stuff going on. You know, some of it quite powerful, some of it still needs improvement, but we're all trying to make 
progress on these things. So I'm, I'm curious to have that conversation. You know, before we get into what you're doing with the um, Bull Family Farms and the work there, give us a sense of the background, like the history, like how you got into cannabis, how you got into business at cannabis, you know, kind of give us a little background. Uh, sure, on, uh, sure, on sure, sure, absolutely. So I was introduced to cannabis when I was about 10 years old. Um, mm-hmm. I recognized it by it being the uh, funny smelling cigarettes my dad used to roll up and smoke after dinner. So, yeah. you know, he and my mom, you know, we'd retire to the couch after dinner. Dad would roll up his funny smelling cigarette. Mom would have a glass of wine. And that's how we enjoy time after dinner. So, you know, at a very young age, I was introduced to it. And then, you know, it I would smell the same funny smelling cigarette at family events, barbecues, Thanksgiving, Christmas time, uh, yeah. what have you. So uncle was smoking the cigarettes, grandma, cousins, everyone. So um, I learned at a very early age that uh, I was introduced to cannabis at a very, very early age. And I grew up in the in the 80s. So, you know, it was rather confusing for a child at that time yeah. because you had the Ronald Reagan Just Say No campaign. And then, you know, inside the house or at barbecues or family events, I would, you know, see this thing. So but needless to say, you know, um, it was a culture thing. It was something that ethically and morally, I didn't see anything wrong with it growing up because yeah. everyone I loved was partaking in it. Mm-hmm. Uh, fast forward to a uh, turn about 16 years old and um, my cousin Earl, who gave me my start, <laughs> I should say, mm-hmm. in this business was the family drug dealer and mm-hmm. the neighborhood drug pusher. So uh, at about 16, cousin Earl gave me my first ounce of weed. And that's when I started to figure out that there was some monetary gain off of this yeah particular thing, right? Uh, yeah. Wasn't very good at it at that time, though, you know, so I kind of blew through the ounce and didn't really make too much money uh, <laughs> uh, from it, you know, because I wasn't very good. And Cousin yeah. Earl wasn't there to hold my hand. But, um, you know, as I got older and I left home at 18 uh, and had to fend for myself. So this is when I went to junior college over at Mount San Antonio Junior College mm-hmm. in Walnut, California. And I needed to put gas in my car. I needed to put buy my books. I needed to pay tuition. So Call up Cousin Earl again, say, hey, man, let's run that back. I need to try this again. Only this time, you know, I was a little bit more mature, you know, it was a few years later. And I understood that, you know, the severity of, of what I needed to do because my parents didn't have the finance to put me through school. Yeah. So I started selling, you know, weed out of my backpack in junior college and was able to, you know, pay for my books, tuition, gas, tennis shoes, things like that. And wind yeah. up getting myself a full ride scholarship uh, to play football over at the University of California, Berkeley, over at Cal. Mm-hmm. Go Bears. Yeah. So once I got to school, you know, I put it down, you know, didn't need it anymore. My dreams and aspirations were to graduate college, be the first kid in my family to graduate college and go off and play pro football. Did uh, graduate from University of California, Berkeley in 2001, got picked up as a free agent to go play with the San Francisco 49ers, was there for about a year, got released, found myself over in NFL Europe in Berlin, Germany the following year. Played there for a year and then came home, didn't want to wait to sign on with another team. So I signed a three year deal over in Canada, which landed me in Vancouver in British Columbia. Sure. In British Columbia is where I got bit by the cultivation bug before, you know, as a child or as a young adolescent, you know, teenager selling weed out of your backpack. I didn't really know where it was coming from. I got it from Cousin Earl and I sold it and I used the money to do what I needed to do. Once I got to Canada, it being the Mecca, a buddy of mine on my team, his girlfriend's brother had a grow. So that was the first time I got to see, you know, cannabis from seed. Yeah, the plant. Yeah, yeah, the plant. I got to watch it, you know, from seed to clone to veg to bloom and then to be cut and harvested. Right. So that's when I really, really fell in love with the process of the plant. I just it was something about it that just attracted me to it from that level. So finished up over in Canada in about 2006 was actually while I was in Canada during the off season, since we have statute of limitations now, um, mm-hmm. we I started <laughs> 
I had started, me and a buddy of mine had started supplementing our income by trafficking over the weed from British Columbia over into LA. The margins there were incredible. You know, yeah. I was picking up weed there in Canada for about 800, 900 bucks and selling it for about 3,500 down here in LA. Nice. So during that time, you know, I became very, very popular. Even though I was a, a football player, you know, during the off season, I became very, very popular in the traditional market because mm -hmm. I was able to undercut the market out here because I was getting it so cheap and using my football credentials to hop the border over in Bellingham. Yeah. So that went on. And then once I finished in 2006, I said, well, you know, I really had started making more money, you know, moving the product than I was playing football, to be honest with you. Yeah. Um, so once I was done, I just said, you know what, I'm just going to go ahead and do this full time. So I became, you know, got a lot more and more popular. I linked up with some guys over in Canada who were able to get me the product down here since I had stopped playing and I wasn't doing it myself. And I just became very, very big until the point to where in 2010, I attracted the attention of the federal government and found myself on a, on a 14 man indictment, yep. um, got wrapped up in that, signed a deal to do three years in federal prison, bailed out and fought in was on pretrial release for a total of four years. What happened was, yep. you know, the target and a couple other guys on the case were fighting the case for about four or five years. I had a really great attorney. The, my attorney, once I signed my deal, my attorney said, well, we don't want him to report for sentencing until the case is over. Yep. So with those guys fighting the case for four and a half, five years, when I went back for sentencing, I had kept a job. I was working for Nike at the time for all that time. Well, I worked for Abercrombie for about two years, folding T-shirts, go figure at 32 years old. That was fun. Yep. Um, <laughs> and then got headhunted by Nike and was running the NFL department for them. So when I finally did go back for sentencing, the judge looked at me and said, you know, Mr. Ball, I feel like you've been rehabilitated. I had turned in about a thousand hours of community service. I kept a job. I paid my taxes yeah. for the past four years. So judge gave me time served. Walked out of the courtroom. Yeah. This is in 2014, I want to say. Walked out of the courtroom. And um, when I left the courtroom, something had happened to me prior. While I was in prison, I was in the law library and two older gentlemen knew about my case. And they asked me, hey, Chris, how come you were selling all that weed? Why weren't you just growing it? And I said, well, what, what do you mean? And they go, <laughs> they go, well, let's, yeah, they go, let's just do some math here. Let's say you were caught with, you know, your case was for 2000 pounds of weed that you were distributing, you know, throughout wow. the United States. They said, how much were you making off of that? So I told them the number and we added it up and they said, okay, now how much would you have made had you been growing the weed? Right. And so when we added that up and I saw the difference in the numbers, the light bulb went off in my head. Yeah. really, really bright. Right. And I said, wow, I can't believe I was making someone else that much money. Yeah. So fast forward to when I leave court and I'm, you know, judge gives me time served. The first thing that I wanted to do was go get my own grow because mm -hmm. I'd already had the network and everything established. Right. Yeah. I hadn't hadn't really dabbled it and hadn't been around it for about four or five years. But once you're in that scene, you're in that scene. Once you're in that, yeah. that culture and community, it's always there. So when I left court, the first thing I did is I went and bought me a 14 light grow over in Van Nuys, California. And I sat there and burnt up plants for about two years until I got really, <laughs> really good. <laughs> Growing is not easy for everyone out yeah. there listening. If you think you're just going to come into it and grow right away, you got another yeah. thing coming. Yeah, you'll learn quickly. Yeah, burnt up plants for a good two years. I got good in about at about 2016. And then I started selling to Prop D shops. Right. Okay. And then um, yeah. that went really well for me kind of made a name for myself until I was introduced to the social equity program in 2018. And then Ball Family Farms was born. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I'm curious. And as you look back on your history, I mean, is there, I mean, guess what, what was your big takeaway in terms of, you know, your own learning, kind of your kind of assessment of the cannabis industry? I mean, I'm, I'm just, 
where did it leave you? For sure. So I would say for me, you know, my experience with cannabis from the time I was 10 until the time I was 32 years old, uh, when I caught my case, cannabis taught me a tremendous, a tremendous amount about loyalty, about patience, about hard work. And mind you, I'm an athlete, right? I'm an ex-athlete. So hard work and dedication and all those things and discipline were not new to me. Mm-hmm. But what it did teach me is that, you know, coming to the, into this cannabis space, you know, I learned a lot from selling weed out of my backpack and dealing with certain individuals, you know, from being robbed, you know, yeah. from individuals, people who I thought that cared about me, people who I thought that were my friends to going into federal prison. And when I went to federal prison, I was looking at a 10 year mandatory minimum. So that scared the shit out of me, you know, yeah. sitting in that law library, meeting those two gentlemen and then having them turn on a light bulb in my head about where I should be focusing my energy in the space as to where I was focusing my energy in the space. I mean, when I look at, you know, what cannabis has done for me and now the position that I'm in today where I have a, a hugely successful legal cannabis company, I'm paying my yeah. taxes. I have now become one of the voices of social equity and social justice in the space. You know, for me, it's kind of surreal. And I lost my father about 10 years ago. So and when I turned 18, my father was um, strung out on drugs. So I didn't have that male leadership up into my 20s when I was getting into all of this trouble and making these mistakes. But now when I look back at it, everything that I've gone through as a young man and as, you know, a traditional market cannabis guy and now a recreational market cannabis guy, Cannabis has really made me the man that I am today as far as my business acumen, as far as, you know, my my touch and feel on the culture of the space. I understand the space. I've been in the culture since I was 16 years old. I've I've paid my debt to society. I've been incarcerated for it. I failed at it. You know, I burnt up plants and now I'm successful at it. So, you know, it's really made me the person you hear speaking to you today. Yeah. I'm curious, when did you feel like you kind of made it or you kind of turned the corner or this, you know, that there was... Definitely had some kind of challenging times and kind of had to just push through a lot of this stuff. I guess, when did you feel like that that there was a real kind of bright opportunity and that you were on the path to the success that you're on now? Right after I got my social equity license. And when I got my social equity license and brought my brother on into my company to be my, my mm-hmm. CFO, I think that's when things really started to hit me because I started developing a team of people that were guiding me in a different direction as far as business is concerned, right? And so before then, you know, I'm just a traditional guy. You know, I got money. I've had money at a very, very high level. That's why the feds came after me, you know? So it wasn't the money aspect of it that made me feel like I was successful at it. I just felt like I was doing something that I'd always known how to do, and this is what you get, you know? As an inner city kid growing up, you're taught two things. The way you make it out of the hood is you're either a professional athlete or you're a drug dealer. And I kind of touch both. Yeah. So so for me, it wasn't the, the money aspect of it. When I felt like I started turning the corners when, you know, when we did, when we were able to acquire that social equity license and my brother came aboard, my COO came aboard. Her name is Ebony Anderson. And I ha- started having to have meetings with architects and I had to go down to the city and do MEPs yeah. and learn about mechanical, electrical and plumbing. I had to start learning about my handicap, you know, things that I need to make sure that I'm taking care of inside of the facility. I need to make mm-hmm. sure that we have insurance. I need to make sure that we have workers comp, those things. And when we started doing those things and I started, we started knocking them out and started having success. And I'm like, holy shit. I turned around and mm-hmm. said, I got a full grown business here with insurance and and workers and employees and <laughs> tax fuck, returns. Yeah, and tax <laughs> returns. I'm offering medical benefits. Yeah. That's when it hit me, and Gotta I go, four hundred one k. Yeah, I go, holy shit, bro! Uh, you're you're an actual real businessman. Yeah. When did this happen? 
Yeah. And also it was, you know, you kind of go through the processing, you're working and you're working and you're working and you're, you know, the, the licensing process in Los Angeles was so rigorous and oh, so God, tough. Yeah. And, you know, that social equity situation, that program is so broken and we had to go through so many hoops and hurdles and everything like that to where one day you just kind of turn around and you look around and you go, shit, I just walked into a facility with 37 employees. Everyone's happy. Mm-hmm. Everyone's smiling. Yeah. Putting you, food on family's tables. Food on I mean, family's that, tables. You're, yeah. You know, you're my, making a difference. My brand is getting recognition. I got people, wonderful people like Bruce wanting to interview me and talk to <laughs> me about social equity and social justice. I mean, it's really surreal, bro. It really is. Yeah. I'm curious what, like, as you, as you started to build a business, what skills, kind of experiences were you able to leverage both from your, you know, history in, in, you know, dealing in cannabis as well as, you know, professional athlete? Like, which things do you find you were kind of like applying to this new version or this new, you know, the new company, building up the company? And what were some of the challenges, things that you realized you had to kind of learn as you went and kind of add to your skill set? Absolutely. That's a great question. Uh, for me, one of the things, I'll start with the thing that I had to learn because it's so fresh in my mind because I'm working on it every single day. For me, one of the big things that I had to learn coming from the professional world, the professional sports world, collegiate, professional, what have you, you are taught to have very, very quick memory, right? Short term Uh memory, you know, thing with playing pro football, you screw up on a play, you got 25 seconds, forget about it and get back to 100 percent. Right. That's how much time you got. So and your coaches, you know, growing up, you know, from high school coaches to college coaches to professional coaches, they are you are you get a lot of tough love. Right. There are no excuses. We just get it done. We're not about why this, why that. We're about results. Right. We have Mm -hmm. an issue. We solve the problem and we get results. So for me, I kind of carry that over into the workplace. That's the kind of leader I am. I kind of run my company like a football organization or a baseball organization or a basketball organization. Right. Mm -hmm. We like results. I like results. I don't need to hear all the things in between. I just like results. And on a football team, I wasn't used to people stepping on each other or talking crap about one another or this employee trying to overstep this employee or this executive trying to maneuver this way. We're a team, Mm -hmm. you know, so everything is kind of put out in the open inside of the locker room. Hey, if you screw up, I'm going to tell you, hey, you fucked that up. You know, we're not going to do it outside of the locker room in front of the press and in front of fans. But inside, we are able to tell one another you did a bad job. Speak the truth. Yeah. yeah. And in, in the workforce, in the regular work, I call it the civilian, you know, work, workplace, <laughs> like, yeah. you know, us athletes, I feel like we're, you know, warriors or gladiators. Yeah, or something, yeah, so there, yeah, there are different rules. Yeah. But, um, you know, would talk to some of my employees like that or some of my partners like that. I would give them tough love to, hey, you know, I don't really give a shit about what happened last night. This was supposed mm-hmm. to be done. And I started to realize that everyone, you can't talk to people like that. You know, you can't motivate your team like that. There are certain things that that I picked up from being in a team atmosphere that work great. You know, the Mm -hmm. way we celebrate and the way, you know, I give I talk to everyone at the same time and and reward everyone at the same time because we win as a team, we lose as a team. But in some of the other disciplinary areas, I had to learn how to speak to my different employees or partners or executives in a different way. I had to kind of figure them out individually and learn how to push their buttons or get the best out of them. So that was one of the things that, you know, in building a company and building such diverse and different personalities that I had to learn. 
some of the other things, the other part of your question was what tools did I take, you know, from being in the traditional market or playing pro sports that I can apply into this that have helped. And there's been yeah. a tremendous amount. Right. One thing is my work ethic. I've never asked anyone on my staff to do anything that I wouldn't do. Right. So yeah. you'll see there's going to be a documentary coming out about my company. And there's some old footage in this documentary where you actually see me, the CEO of the company on the floor with a hammer in my hand and oil all over my body and, mm -hmm. you know, band-aids around my fingers because I'm putting tables together. Or you see me sweeping or getting on my hands and knees and cleaning up water and stuff from underneath my tables and things yeah. of that nature. So for me, being, you know, an athlete and being a guy on the front line in the traditional marketing being a guy who served time in federal prison for this, there's nothing that I'm not going to do. There's nothing that I haven't done in this space that I won't ask of my employees. So yeah. my employees and my team, they respect that about me, you know, because yeah, they know powerful. if I'm asking them to do something, I'm not just some CEO that walked in with a bunch of money and said, here, here's how we're going to do things. They know my history. They know where I come from. So if I'm asking them to do something, they're going to do the same thing, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, absolutely. Do you feel like you're a, a different type of cannabis entrepreneur than, you know, someone that came in from Wall Street with a bunch of money and, you know, invested in cannabis and is doing a grow? I mean, I, is one million there... percent, one million yeah. percent. It's a total 180, yeah. you know, and the difference is I have nothing against those guys. Do I think yeah. they're healthy for the space and the culture? Absolutely not. Not until they learn about the space and the culture. But for a guy like me, for someone who's been, you know, selling weed since I was 16, someone mm -hmm. who was successful at it, which is why I was federally indicted for yeah. it, right? Like yeah. the feds don't come unless you're doing, you're having some success at something. Yep. You know, I think that guys like myself who come from this space and understand this culture, understand the cannabis consumer. We understand what you want. We understand what this plant needs to be. We understand how it needs to taste, how it needs to smell. We understand how it needs to be marketed you know, where to market it, where to put those marketing dollars, what strains to put out, the quality control aspect of it. All those things are important. And in, 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 and people are starting to learn, you know, in the cannabis space. I make this comparison all the time for people who drink. Right. If you drink, let's say you drink tequila. Right. If I sat down a, a shot of Patron in front of you and I then I sat down a shot of Don Julio or 1942 in front of you and you didn't know which was which. A person who drinks tequila, as soon as they drink each one of those, they're going to tell me right away which one oh, is yeah. which. Right. You're going to know if you drink vodka and I put Smirnoff in front of you or if I put Belvedere in front of you, you're going to know the difference. So yeah. it's the same thing in the cannabis space. And I think, you know, coming from the cannabis space and being of the culture, I understand that from growing weed and selling weed and tasting weed and, and understanding it and putting in my 10,000 hours of um, strategy and, and study on this plant, I understand those things. And some of these other entrepreneurs or CEOs, they don't get that. They're looking at it like it's a commodity. They're looking at yeah. it like it's copper. Yeah, they're looking at it like it's a tennis shoe or a yeah. soft drink or something, and it doesn't work that way. The consumer knows the difference. The culture, we know the difference. You can't just put any type of cannabis in pretty packaging and sell it. You'll get the one buy, but they'll never return and your company will never have any type of success that way. Yeah. yeah. Let's circle back to the social equity programs because you, you mentioned, you talked about going through it. You talked about it was a challenge. I guess what's your take? And I'll sort of make it a two-part question. One is in terms of, you know, the intent of the programs, like what they're sort of, what they're trying to do and, you know, kind of their, their, their mission and then the execution of them. And what's your evaluation as someone who's been through them, who kind of knows them, knows the market, knows the kind of the dynamics that are going on in the cannabis space? I mean, do you think they're, the program 
programs are designed or, or what they're trying to do is the right thing? And then are they executing well on that? You know, Bruce, another great question. And there, I have a lot of frustration around mm-hmm. this topic because I honestly, honestly, I honestly believe that the program, you know, was set up. I think the program, the idea of the program was brilliant. Right. Mm-hmm. I thought I was very excited when I heard about it. I couldn't believe it. But I think the program was set up, you know, for people to fail. And the reason why I say that is because I got that contract. Right. I got that mm-hmm. application when it came out and it was very long. It was very confusing. Everything that I had to go through to get through that licensing process, had I not found my COO, Ebony Anderson, had I not found this woman, you know, she's an urban planner by trade. So she worked with the city before I even Mm -hmm. met her. That's what she did. So had I not got lucky enough to find this woman and her walk me through that application and walk me through the verbiage and walk me through inspection and walk me through plans and permitting and teach me how to go down to the city and apply for certain things, I would have failed. There's no way I would be here today. And so when you're setting up a social equity program to a bunch of people who have been incarcerated or disenfranchised by the war on drugs, and you put some this a long, rigorous application in front of them like this, knowing that they have no education or minimal education and no resources, which is why they're considered social equity, how do you expect them to get through this without offering them some sort of assistance? Yeah. It would be like Berkeley giving me a football scholarship, but not paying for my tuition, not giving me access to tutors, not giving me priority registration and not giving me money for my books and not giving me a scholarship check. I would have flunked out of school. Great yeah. that you admitted me to the university, but you gave me no resources to help me be successful. And that's what's wrong with the social equity program today. You know, I'm a unicorn. I'm one of the special ones. Right. Yeah. I was smart enough to go out and find someone who could guide me this way and teach me this and go out and find someone else who could guide me in this direction and teach me this. You know, I already had already knew how to sell weed. I could do that for you all day. That's the easy part. You know, when it came to that social equity program, the hard part was getting through that licensing. I mean, getting through that licensing phase and getting my facility built out with all these contractors and architects and all these other type things that I was going to need from the city and the state to qualify. So I think that's where the program is broken in it, where it really, really needs, you know, some help. Yeah. And can it be fixed? I mean, do you think that? I think uh, it can. I think it can. There was a program that they were putting in place where they were going to have like a group of people down at the city who were able to help social equity applicants in certain aspects or areas of their licensing uh, program or just, you know, offering them some, it was going to be kind of like a tutoring program. And my group, we actually, Ebony, myself and our attorney, we actually were one of the groups that qualified to be one of those groups to help people, to help other social equity applicants get on their feet. But I don't know what happened to the program. It stumbled and then it just came to a halt. You know, I'm assuming because of COVID and maybe because of you know money or whatever, but they were trying to, they were attempting to do something like that, but I don't know what happened to that program. But I do think it can be fixed. There just need to be some, the city and the state really need to put some resources and funds towards that so we can help out some of these other social equity applicants. Yeah. And what else, I guess, what else do you see that we can do for those of us in the industry, whether you're actually running businesses, you know, advising businesses, working with folks, what can we do as an industry to really help address this problem and make sure that we're providing, you know, opportunities, making sure that we're, you know, addressing and correcting, you know, some of the historical you know, yeah. wrongs that have been you know put in place. What's top priority for you that needs to be addressed? I think top priority would be for me would be to make sure that, you know, if I'm if I'm going to consult another company, right? And if somebody were to ask me that, I would say the first thing that you need to do is you need to go find you a traditional operator, mm-hmm. a, a traditional cannabis person 
who has been disenfranchised by this and who understands this culture and start listening to that person. Bring that person onto your staff and start listening to them and make sure they're the right ones because there are the bad seeds out there, right? But there are thousands and, and thousands of more Chris Balls out there who come from this space and who really, really want to do it right, who really, really want to create generational wealth for themselves, for their families, and really understand this industry and business and know how to have success at it. That would be the first thing that I would suggest, right? For all these companies and a lot of these MSOs and a lot of these hedge fund companies and they have all this great money, go out there and find you a traditional cannabis person and put that person in on your board. Put that person in position to start helping you make some decisions on where to spend your money, what to do with your packaging, what strains you need to come out. And then I would also try to get out there and hire people from the space who have been disenfranchised by yeah. this. Give those people an opportunity to show you why they were incarcerated in the first place. This is yeah. not a new business. Right. This is just not it's not it's not a new business. I think it's not a everyone, new industry. Yeah, I keep saying that, but it's not. It's not a new industry. Like it's yeah. been here. We've been here for a very, very long time. And there are people that have had major, major success at it. It's not rocket science, but you got to get the right person. You can't go get you this attorney or this money guy from Pfizer or from I've, I've saw I've seen so many money people and people come into the space from other industries and nobody's think nobody is going to get people who have come from the traditional market. These are the people who created this industry. Yeah. We know how it runs. We know what the public wants. Just go get yeah. you one and listen. It ain't yeah. it ain't that hard. Yeah. And what's your take on the, um, you know, dealing with people that are currently incarcerated for cannabis offenses and record expungement and stuff like that? I mean, are you, how, what's your approach or what's your feeling on, on how we deal with that issue? You know, for me, it's a loaded question, right? Because yeah. there's so many, so many people in, in prison right now for cannabis convictions right yeah. now. I don't know if you're just in there for a cannabis conviction because you got caught with an ounce of weed or did you get ca caught with a pound of weed and two guns? Right. So the, I think the first thing that needs to happen, you know, is if you're in, if you're in prison for a nonviolent cannabis, you know, conviction, you obviously need to be let out. And you're, you're, that record obviously needs to be expunged. Right. I mean, yeah. cannabis was is, is was considered an essential business during a pandemic when nobody else could go to work. You could yeah, order exactly. food and you could order cannabis. Yeah. Get the expungements, get those records clean. Right. And if there are people in there, I think, you know, like I said, if they're nonviolent cannabis convictions, I think they need to be let out. You know, and I think those type of people need to be the people working in this legal yep. framework. I think those people need to be given an opportunity to work in the legal framework of what's going on, because obviously they have a passion for it or they were doing it before. So there must be some experience there. You know, and then that's not to say everyone, you know, but I'm sure you're going to find out of 10, I'm sure you'll find at least three or four, maybe even five that really know what's going on in this industry and can really help some of these companies make some money and not go out of business. Yeah, yeah, that's great. And what's on the uh, horizon here for Fall Family Farms? What are you what are you working on? What's in the pipeline? What can we expect? So really yeah. exciting stuff. Thank you for asking me that question. Yeah. Ball Family Farms is about to drop our next three staple strains. So those will be dropping on December 12th. So everyone be looking out for that right now. We currently have three strains in the market. I'm a Daniel LaRusso, Miyagi-Do and Bonsai. 
Um, and those are all from the, you know, 1980s movie, The Karate Kid, which is mm -hmm. one of my favorite movies. Remember it well. <laughs> yes, sir. Mr. Ralph Macchio in the game. Yeah. Um, so the next three strains will are based off of another movie that was really, really popular and something that was near and dear to my heart. So that's coming up. I have a, we also have a collaboration in the pipeline with a couple collaborations coming in the pipeline. We got one with Pac Woods that we're doing. Um, that'll come in December as well. We have one with a um, dispensary out here in California called Sweet flower which is predominantly run by women and we mm -hmm. are very very adamant and strong and passionate about women in the cannabis space so yeah. we are doing a collaboration pre-roll with those wonderful women over at sweet flower and their company and then at the end of the year or early 2021 we're doing a collaboration with nipsey hustle's family i've developed two strains Ooh, for nice. them one called crenshaw and one one called slauson that is going to be coming on the pipeline as well and a documentary about ball family farms and how the journey and how I got started and what's coming. Amazing. Amazing. That sounds great. I can't wait to see all of that. I can't wait to try the strains. If people want to find out more about you, about the farm, what's the best way to get that information? Yes. So we are at uh, ballfamilyfarms.com on the web. We are at at ballfamilyfarms on Instagram. Um, and so that's where you can find us. And we're at ballfamilyfarms on Facebook. Great. I will make sure that the URL and the handles and everything are in the show notes. People get that information. Chris, this has been a pleasure. Thank you so much for taking the time today. Bruce, thank you so much, man, for uh, allowing me to come on and tell my story. You know, it's still really surreal for me, for people such as yourself and some of the other, you know, people have contacted me that want to talk to me, hear my story. It's, you know, I'm a young inner city kid, you know, who had dreams and aspirations of just seeing his name on a, on a weed jar one day. And so now to be in this position, to be the voice of social equity and social justice, man, it's really a dream come true. So, Thank you very much for taking the time to, to let me tell my story, brother. I appreciate it. It's my pleasure. Thank you. You've been listening to Thinking Outside the Bud with business coach Bruce Eckfeld. To find a full list of podcast episodes, download the tools and worksheets and access other great content. Visit the website at thinkingoutsidethebud.com. And don't forget to sign up for the free newsletter at thinkingoutsidethebud.com forward slash newsletter. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.